So. Are you sure? I was like, I definitely was reading and writing at the age of three. And we deliver a product that is bar none and doesn't currently exist in the industry. I was always learning from everyone around me. This is Blair Durham with Black Wall Street Today, your media hub for all things Black entrepreneurship, politics, news, and events in Hampton Roads and beyond. Wouldn't you like to be a guest on Black Wall Street Today with Blair Durham? Well, the link is in the show notes. And now, here's your host, Blair Durham. Greetings, 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 greetings. I am joined now by Angel Rich, creating an algorithm for the stock market to win Goldman Sachs Portfolio Challenge, selling her first marketing plan to Prudential, becoming a founding employee of FINRA, authoring the first ever African-American financial experience study, inventing the top financial literacy product in the world, and being named the next Steve Jobs by Forbes, all by the age of 30. Angel Rich has earned the title Wealth Pioneer. In 2009, Rich became a global market research analyst for Prudential Financial. While there, she conducted over 70 financial behavior studies, including the Obama's Veterans Initiative. During her final year at Prudential, she helped the company's annuities division grow from number 16 in service to number four, helping the company save $6 billion. Rich left Prudential to found the Wealth Factory with a mission to provide equal access to financial literacy to everyone, everywhere, via education, technology, games, curriculum, and fintech products. In 2017, she released the first financial literacy mobile game to market titled Credit Stacker. Credit Stacker exceeded 200,000 downloads in 60 countries within two weeks. In addition to climbing to number one education app in 14 countries, Credit Stacker has garnered numerous accolades, including top five and 40 on Apple, top 10 in the world by Google, also named the best financial literacy product in the country by the White House Department of Education and J.P. Morgan Chase. That year, Rich also released her first book, The History of the Black Dollar, with a foreword written by Dr. Maya Rockamore Cummings. The book takes readers on an economic journey through history to depict the major milestones, historic figures, and upcoming leaders. She was awarded Hamptonian of the Year, HBCU 30 Under 30, Hampton 40 under 40 and Google top 30 black female founders. In 2018, the United Nations named her one of the top 100 most influential people in the African diaspora and one of five icons. In 2019, she released her second book, Black Woman Politics, and was honored as a historic figure at the Sandy Springs Slave Museum. She's most proud to be vice chair of the Financial Literacy Council after appointment from the mayor of DC, designing the financial literacy recommendations for the city. In 2020, Rich graduated from the NASDAQ Entrepreneurship Center, Hill Vets Lead Program, and 1871's first accelerator for women in fintech. She also co-created the MIT Hacking Racism Challenge for hashtag Black Tech Matters in partnership with MIT, producing the largest Black hackathon in the country with over 1,500 participants and 100 partners, including 20 HBCUs. Later that year, she strategically launched Credit Rich, an artificial intelligence fintech app that rounds up users' spare change to pay bills intelligently and increase their credit score in partnership with Experian, making it the first Black American company to have an institutional partnership with a credit bureau. Welcome to the show, Angel Rich. How are you? 
I am doing amazing. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I am delighted. This this interview really has been a couple of years in the making. So I'm just excited to see it come to fruition, excited about our partnership for the upcoming Black Diamond Weekend, um, and just grateful to you for putting in the work. So it feels like you've been kind of on a mission since birth. Like, what was it that <laughs> a fire under you? <laughs> and then tell us where you're going from here. So give us backstory and then um, let us know kind of your trajectory. Well, it's interesting that you say that. And I guess I kind of have been on a mission since birth. Um, I, I, I recently was with um, a group of kids and I asked them at what age do kids really start to talk? And they told me like three or four years old is when they start to make formal senses. And I was like, huh, are you sure? I was like, I definitely was reading and writing at the age of three. And they were like, what? And I was like, I know that for certain. Um, when I started kindergarten, I already knew how to read and write. And uh, when I got to the first grade, they put me on a fifth grade reading level. So I didn't even realize how advanced I might have been until like within the last month uh, when I was at this uh, this kid's party. So that made me think like, wow, I really have been kind of, you know, on a on a different sort of um, level since I was born. One of my earliest memories is calling around the house um, to go to the different trash cans at night to see what everyone threw away, to see what useful products I can invent out of it. And, <laughs> and so uh, one of my ones that I remember a lot, I would take like tissue boxes and the toilet paper rolls and I would make cars for my Barbie dolls. <laughs> so, um, wow. so I know that I've always wanted to be an inventor um, as far back as I can remember. I knew who Leonardo da Vinci was from reading childhood books. And then when I was six years old, I received a vision from God um, about my life to the fact that it was going to be something regarding helping people with financial literacy. Of course, I didn't know what financial literacy was exactly at the time, but my whole family sold life insurance. So I understood the financial strifes that people were going through, having traveled around the country and being in people's homes and offices with my parents. Um, it gave me a deep passion for wanting to help people to understand how to manage their money better, exactly what we would do on the weekends with my mother as she would go around to her clients. And when you sell universal life insurance, it's not a sort of one and done sale. It is a lifetime relationship because they continue to add money to that policy and they have to withdraw it and things of that nature. So in that, you really get to know the sort of financial relationship with your client on a much higher level than you would selling other typical products. And I guess that's what led me to also want to be a financial uh, behavior modification researcher to learn that more and to use that knowledge to help other people. Okay, so now it makes sense. <laughs> you grew up in the life insurance space. Wow. I mean, I think... Yeah, that's huge. I think about kind of the exposure um, that my parents gave me from little and how that's translated into some of the work that I'm doing now. It makes sense. I can see it. So let me ask this, you know, the, the glam is around entrepreneurship. It's around being a boss. It's around this idea of time freedom. Um, 
but certainly there's a lot more to it than that, right? Um, what, as you see it, is the relationship between financial literacy, literacy and entrepreneurship? Well, I don't see you, I don't see somebody actually being capable of being a true successful entrepreneur without financial literacy. You could be a successful inventor for certain, and then someone else comes along and, you know, is helping you with the business and the finances. But for you yourself to be a successful entrepreneur, then you need to understand how to scrimp, how to be able to save, how to be able to make every single dollar count, how you need to be able to take a pack of uh, oodles and noodles and eat that for three days. Okay. Um, And then as well as once you have that serious amount of financial responsibility and financial management down, you then need to translate that into your business where when you are hiring employees, you're getting the best bang for your buck out of it. You know, like your employees should be making money for you. How much revenue are you making per employee? Um, These different vendors and things that you're buying, how much money are they making for you? One of the biggest signs of an entrepreneur not having financial literacy is buying fresh flowers. How are you making money off of these fresh flowers? Please tell me. Um, So that's actually a waste of money. It's a a big sign that a lot of Silicon Valley uh, VCs use when they go to visit offices. If they walk in and there's just, unnecessary accoutrements everywhere, they've already decided not to invest in that founder because you're wasting money. Um, So even last night, I think I have a burger in my purse right now from me not eating it all the way yesterday. And it drives my fiance crazy, but I refuse to waste money. We was crossing the street with a major client that we're getting a major contract um, coming up, right? And we were crossing the street with this man and there was a penny on the ground and I stopped in the middle of the road to pick up men's sentence and conversation and I stopped to pick up the penny. So it's like, I don't waste money, okay? Um, and and any, any time there's an opportunity to save or make money, I take it. Huge. And that's financial literacy. You, you need to be able to read, write, and speak the language of money. Mm. And so your platforms are helping folks to do this because clearly it's not something that we're necessarily born with, right? This is a skill we have to develop. This is something we have to acquire. I know we operate um, an entrepreneurship program at a local middle school and they're struggling with this concept of a budget. Like, what does it mean? Like, how am I analyzing expenses? Like, how does this... So break down for us kind of what what the platform does, how it then teaches us to understand these kind of abstract concepts. Yes. You know, um, imagine if your mother never taught you how to brush your teeth. And imagine if her mother never taught her how to brush her teeth. And every day you just walked around with gingivitis. And you, you never really got that sickness out of your body. Mm. That is pretty much most people that have never received financial literacy. They are walking around with a financial sickness in their body that they have never been taught to be able to rid that sickness out of their body. And yeah. then you have sort of the credit industry that came along as a medicine, if you will, 
But just like any prescription pill, you can abuse it and become addicted to it. Mm-hmm. So then you have to go through rehab. Or if you are just coming fresh out of school when you're 18, you need to learn the how to actually use this pill, but not abuse it. So that is what has happened with financial literacy. With people who never being taught for generations how to actually manage their money, they can't help but end up in debt. I graduated with $180,000 worth of debt and a credit score of 444. I started off at Hampton with no debt and a credit score of 620. So with, with while my mother very much understood how to make money, um, the sort of credit component was not as much there. And let's say she didn't understand credit, which my mother actually does uh, uh, very much so. But when you have different financial circumstances, maybe that was her only solution from, from several generations. But when you find yourself in this circumstance and you have no clue how to be get how to get out of it, when you're 22 years old, one hundred and eighty thousand dollars in debt with a 444 credit score and your accounts are saying it's going to take you until age 55 until you can pay off this debt to even begin to think about buying a house. You have no choice but to reverse engineer the Fair Isaac credit reporting system. Mm -hmm. And so that is what I did. And I was fortunate to be able to figure out the different factors that went into the credit system, such as simply paying your bills on time. 35% of your score is paying your bills on time. And that's why we created Credit Rich. Credit Rich rounds up users' spare change to pay your bills intelligently and optimize your credit score as fast as possible. We are extremely excited to be directly in partnership with Experian as well as FICO. And we deliver a product that is bar none and doesn't currently exist in the industry. What you have typically seen for investment management is what we've done for credit management, where we are able to actually help you forecast what your credit score would look like based on your present day behavior, as well as we allow you to collect spare change from friends and family to be able to help your your kids or other family members instead of, hey, hey, Unc, can I have $20, you know, every Tuesday? Instead, Unc can just attach his spare change to his nephew's uh, bank account and help him out in college that way. And we also have some interesting developments around some cards. I can't talk too much about that right now, Um, but that's really exciting and on the way. And uh, we are on a mission to help people understand how to be able to manage their credit and become wealthy from their credit, which is why we call it credit rich, because we don't want people just sitting with a 700 credit score. We want you to actually be able to use it, invite a friend or family member to also join onto your credit, because there's nothing better than one person with a 700 credit score is two. Great, great. And we got about three and a half minutes. I want to ask you two more questions. Um, I saw your post recently in reference to turning down $350 million. <laughs> Share that story if you would. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I just recently, um, that was my first time um, sharing it uh, in writing. And yeah. it's funny because I was doing a podcast with a friend of mine. Um, um, shout out to Dr. Dina Brown. 
I was on a podcast with a friend of mine who was with me in Beverly Hills when that happened, right? So me and her was doing the podcast and we just organically started talking about it. And I was like, I was like, um, I was like, yeah, you were with me that day. Um, That's crazy because me and her had lunch immediately afterwards. And I was like, girl, you ain't gonna believe what just happened. So, and she said on her podcast, and everybody see when it come out, she was like, yep, that definitely happened because I was dead. So, um, it feels so good to kind of talk about it. And again, I just kind of, we just kind of organically started talking about it because we were in a way like celebrating the progress that the company uh, had made today. And the fact that when I walked away from that 350 million, and one of the reasons I've never even publicly said it, because that number sounds, um, it sounds like I'm lying. It sounds like, it sounds like I'm just making it up. Like, you know, like it's, it's just too real for people to even comprehend. And at the time it was actually, it, it was, it was uh, a huge confirmation of the value. I thought I knew I had. Yeah. Basically. Like yeah. I'm watching all these other companies. I'm watching all these other acquisitions. Mm-hmm. I understand the algorithms I've developed. I understand the billions that I made the company that I was at before. Sure. So I'm pretty good at math. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it was just kind of like, you know, um, while in DC, it's a difference being in DC versus in the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And so in the West Coast, well, I'm not going to say for the most part, but in the West Coast, you are more likely to get an unbiased deal based off of what the company is, not your background, what color you are, what what, um, gender you are, all those other factors that come into play on the East Coast and the South. They don't really come into play as much on the West Coast. The West Coast is like, can you make us money? Okay, They see green. Um, so it was really exciting to be able to get that, to be able to turn it down and now be in a position where that number is going to be in our rear view. Wow. Congrats. <laughs> Love the story. Oh, so I got to ask this in closing. If you just tuned in Blair Durham, Black Wall Street today, talking with the angel rich, tell us about the book history of the black dollar. Why write this book? Um, yeah. And what has been the more and more, I did not understand originally why God was so insistent on me writing this book. And I was hesitant at first because I felt like there were so many Black history books that had already been written. Sure. But then when I really went and dived into it, they weren't really Black history books. They were autobiographies or they were thought pieces or they were Black history not written by Black people. Sure. And so I couldn't find an actual black history book. Mm-hmm. And then um, on top of that, I during my readings, I learned that Booker T. Washington had a book called Negroes in Business in 1907. I've been studying Booker T. Washington my whole life. Why did it take me until my 30s to learn that? Mm-hmm. So there, there's an entire economic history that was neglected from our black history pages. Sure. Okay, so I have that information churning in my head. Then around 2016, I wrote the book in 2017. In 2016, I watched the uproar against the Jewish community. And I was at a loss. And, you know, um, 
I sat back and the Holocaust Museum was one of my favorite museums growing up. I used to go to it every single year. And I sat there and I said, hmm, why are people so ready to defend the Jewish community, but not the black community? It was so perplexing to me. And I said, and I had to really think about it from a behavioral standpoint. And I said, you know what it is? The Diary of Anne Frank. Every single American has read the Diary of Anne Frank. And I was speaking at Harvard when I had this thought. I was on the stage when I had this thought. And I said, raise your hand if you read the Diary of Anne Frank. And every hand went up in the room. And I said, of course you have, because it's mandated across America. Therefore, you understand the Jewish experience. When you think about the Jewish experience, you think about little Anne Frank in the attic and you empathize with her and you understand. I said, now tell me the book of a child slave. Silence. Tell me the book of even the Jim Crow era. Silence. So if I'm at Harvard School of Education and you all aren't familiar with this book and there's no book mandated across America, how can we expect to be on the same page if we're not reading from the same book? It's as simple as that. It's a, it's, a, it's a level of misunderstanding and ignorance that is happening. I refuse to believe that it is all just pure racism. Yes, 50%. <laughs> Maybe 75, depending. <laughs> but yeah. there is still a glimmer yeah. and, a, and a growing... I would even say maybe majority that needs to understand and even some of my very close white friends and mentors still don't understand how they are connected and slightly responsible for what has happened in the past. Sure. Yeah, you might be a, a good abolitionist, Angel. but your grandfather still owned slaves and you still were able to benefit from that money. And I think just drawing the connection because many people don't understand that America was paid for by free cotton and that the Industrial Revolution was paid for off of the back of slaves. I think it is an economic history, a true American economic history that needs to happen. So we want black history. We want history of the black dollar mandated in every school across America, as well as universities, as well as Thomas Nelson, as well as Hampton, not just as a black history course, but as an American history course. I can dig it. Angel, okay, so if you want more, because I want more, we have gone way over our time. <laughs> you have to join us during Black Diamond Weekend. Angel Rich is the keynote speaker for our sixth annual Black Diamond Affair. We're in for a treat. All attendees are receiving a copy of her book, History of the Black Dollar. So if you're there in person, you have the book in your swag bag. We're excited. We got to cut this short. We'll talk to you soon, Angel. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you, Blair. It's a pleasure as always. Hey, this is Seiko, DJ Seiko Varner, the producer of this podcast. So when I'm not producing podcasts, I'm actually DJing wedding receptions, corporate events, proms, other formals, and I would love to take care of your special event. So our company is Positive Vibes Incorporated, www.positivevibes.net. That's www.positivevibes.net. We've been performing for over 25 years, and we would love to bring our expertise and our fun to your special event. Positive Vibes Incorporated, www.positivevibes.net. P.
peace and prosperity. Welcome back. Welcome back to Black Wall Street Today on Smooth 88.1 WHOV. Joining me now is famed actor Daryl M. Bell. He is both an actor and a producer with a long line of credits. Daryl started out following in his father's footsteps uh, in the world of business after a chance encounter with Woo, I'm starting again. (laughs) After a chance encounter with producer, director Spike Lee, Bell applied his business strategy into getting an audition and landing a major role in Lee's next movie, School Days. Daryl changed courses and began a career in the world of acting and producing. Following his breakthrough role in Lee's School Days, Belden gained further notoriety as Ron Johnson in the award-winning show, A Different World. Seasons, Bell and his fellow castmates depicted life as college students at a fictitious, historically black college, applying comedy as a means to educate audiences on society's controversial current events. From discrimination to AIDS, apartheid and war, a different world made an impact on television that broke boundaries and pushed the envelope, setting a new standard for television as we know it. Bell most recently can be seen in a recurrent, excuse me, a recurring role on the award winning HBO series Insecure. Welcome, Mr. Bell. How are you? I'm very well. And yourself, Blair? I am very well, too. Okay, <laughs> you smiling. Why are you so happy today? I what am just happy. happy. I am just happy. Okay. It might as well be my lucky day. Okay. Uh, I have no idea what an influence you know, the show has been and you personally have been um, just on all things. So I'm just well, grateful for the opportunity to speak with you and um, looking forward to some time together this weekend. But right. let's jump into these questions. Um, sure. So the show Black Wall Street Today is obviously um, pertinent to all things business for yeah. our community. Um, and I don't think that most people really necessarily equate a career in acting with entrepreneurship. Um, and certainly not necessarily when they're thinking about young actors, right? I want to hear more about this journey. I know you had the influence of your father, um, but what did it mean to you kind of growing up in show business, but especially the, the business piece? Uh, okay, well, I'll break that into two parts. Uh, so first, the idea that most people wouldn't think about entrepreneurship and actors is something that I think everyone should try to think about the world and individuals differently. Your vocation doesn't define your interests or your education. So whatever one chooses to do to earn a living doesn't mean that you are singularly limited to that area of field of interest. Beyond that, I would say there are a few things, there are a few career paths like an actor where you are an independent contractor. That is what you are. If you don't get a job, you know, you don't work. So, and many actors have to support themselves, particularly in, in the beginning, with all kinds of odd jobs. Harrison Ford was a carpenter. How many actors wait tables and do other things? That's the only other place an actor will temporarily work in order to support themselves while their career is in the process of taking off. But once you become a working actor, you are your own company. You are obligated to do all of the things that every entrepreneur is obligated to do. You are your own brand. 
you, you were required to take care of your own marketing, your own bookkeeping, everything else. There's a difference that, you know, if somebody goes to your restaurant and they don't like your food, they say your food sucks. Or if they you buy a, a necklace, somebody say your jewelry sucks. But, you know, if you're an actor, they're like, you suck. You know, so when, when you are the brand, there's, yeah. there's a difference in terms of how consumers respond to what you do. But from the from the actor's side, there's a definite connection. So thinking about that in the second part of your question, how did my growing up with a father who was a, a maverick and a pioneer, particularly in, in business and finance and particularly um, municipal finance, there was, there was always an understanding that there was merit to being independent. Yeah. And, you know, my, my father was always an advocate. I am an independent black owned business. Mm. And that always resonated with me that you needed to be self-reliant and you got to make your own decisions. And when show business presented an opportunity, everyone, and, and I'm not the first to say it's show business. That's what it is. It's show and then there's the business. And in order to be successful, everyone needs to know the business side of entertainment. And there is a business side that's important. I was listening to um, uh, a podcast yesterday, uh, a Smart List with Sean Hayes and uh, uh, Justin Bateman and Will Arnett. And they were talking about the fact that when actors, particularly young actors, when you first start off and you're auditioning, they were talking with George Clooney as well, they were auditioning, and you potentially may get a, a television series, You're put a, a contract is put in front of you for five years, and it will tell you not only how much you're going to get paid, but then it will show you, the, you know, these 5% bumps you're going to get over the next five years, and by the way, that's before you get the job, and while there might be other five other people auditioning for the same job, and they were talking about, you know, and we've all been through that, as if that opportunity isn't stressful enough right. for most actors who need the money and need the job, and then they have to go in the audition. Oh my God! Don't let don't let me blow this. But that's, wow. that's the business side of it. That's yeah. what matters. So there's a, there's a five year commitment, you know, for most actors just to begin. And there's a contract, and you need to know what's in that contract. You need to know all of these things before. You ever think about telling stories and telling jokes and everything else that comes about the fun part of what your job? So. Interesting. I've often interviewed um, you know, artists and musicians who whose sentiments resonate with with yours. So it, it makes sense yep. to me. So let's pivot a bit and uh, thinking about my goodness, what a different world. Mm. It, to our community um, and specifically to kind of black talent. I mean, it, it feels like this, this show along with, you know, several others really created a lane for black yeah. talent, you know, we're not having to um, kind of submit to these subservient roles or do anything crazy, you know, we're effectively legit if we are, part and parcel of a different world. So long-term, what would you say having this kind of early and very positive exposure 
meant for your career? Wow. Um, well, early on, I, I would say it's, it's a story that I, I tell often. And for many people, the, one of the most memorable episodes of A Different World was the wedding episode with Whitley and Byron when Dwayne breaks in. Of course, Ron had his back. Okay, everyone, every time that clip shows up, they're like, I love the way Ron was, you know, backing him up. And again, one of the, you know, most exciting moments in the history of our show. Mm-hmm. Um, but that week, we had everybody on set. It was Patti LaBelle, it was Diane Carroll, it was wow. Richard Roundtree, Ron O'Neill, Glenn Turman, Lou Myers. Wow. Uh, you know, just the the abundance of talent gathered in one place at one time was extraordinary. And for me, because I didn't study acting in college, most of the time, I was always learning from everyone around me because they were all pros. Lou Myers is one of my great teachers and mentors. And I, I told him he always dismissed it because that's just the loving soul that he was. I, you know, Luke came from theater. So if you watch Mr. Gaines in most episodes of A Different World, if you, whenever he's on camera, whenever you can catch him on camera, <laughs> Lou was always busy doing something. Yeah. He always had, he was watching everybody or, you know, he had some activity because he was creating his own life at all times. Because in television, it's easy to go, uh, my part, uh, my part when you go through a script. But Lou didn't do that. Because when you're doing a play, there is no place you can hide. You're on stage the whole time. So you have to create a life for yourself. So that's just one example of all the things that I learned from all of those legendary performers whose shoulders we all stood on. And at that moment, we were all gathered around after lunchtime. And uh, I want to say it was Jasmine and Jada were talking about some issue they were having with the network. Mm-hmm. And Diane Carroll just smiled and said, look at you. Mm-hmm. You just you have, you have no idea what you mean. And they, they didn't know. They said, well, what are you talking about? She said, you're, you're 20-something years old, and you're talking about the fight you're having with the president of the network. Mm-hmm. When I was 20 years old here at the CBS Radford Live, Black people weren't allowed on this lot. And I don't mean as performers. I mean, you couldn't be a janitor and work. Mm-hmm. And now, for the First time in my career, this is from Diane Carroll, the first time in my career, I'm working on a series with all Black stars, Mm. written by a Black woman, produced by a Black woman, directed by a Black woman, ever. Mm. And you just had to let that sink in for Miss Diane Julia Carroll, right? Miss Diane Trailblazing Carroll was talking about Look at what you guys have done. Look at look at what you've accomplished. Right. So, yeah, um, you you there you know, and it's it's always important that for for everyone who has that opportunity, and when you know we're a top five show on television, when we had 20, 30 million people tuning in every week. Your challenge is always to try to do something new, to try to put new footprints in the snow. But 
And, and we certainly did that, and I could talk a lot about that, but I also think it's important to say, uh, you know, one of my great pleasures in life was at a, an NBC function where I got to meet Michelle Nichols. And, you know, when, when you meet folks who trailblazed before you, again, those with whom you stand on their shoulders, you know, before a different world, there were, there were the Jeffersons, there were Good Times, there were other shows that, you know, Sanford and Son, the shows that whether or not they are looked at in the same regard in terms of their depiction of families of color, they were emblematic of their times and they were important because again, these were opportunities that mostly black folks didn't have. Right. And so- uh, Let me ask my- a related question. Uh, yeah. Speaking of opportunity, right? And this is kind of a, this could be a contentious question, but I have to ask it. Yeah. Um, certainly opportunity, as it were, has expanded, you know, and some would say that the proliferation of social media, even uh, reality TV means that there's a bigger space for us. Um, would you say there's been a positive impact on our community by virtue of these, these spaces that have been created? <laughs> you, what's great is you ask questions that I always have to break into two parts. So look at it this way. Um, do it by so, <laughs> Yeah, right. You know, you want to ask a good question. So social media in general, one could say is the death of society. <laughs> you know, you could say yes. that just across the board, like social media is killing all of us. There are certainly benefits to social media and people who use it to stay in touch with one another. There are all kinds of things you can do positively with social media. But, you know, it's a really popular subject now about the ills of social media and how it is negatively impacting our children, you know, how it can become a colossal time suck and all these things. Okay. Yes. So that's true for everybody as well as for black folks. Now, and we, let, let's just also use as common denominator, anything that negatively impacts society generally disproportionately impacts our community. Agreed. So, that being said, what social media has done, what the internet has done, the greatest barrier to getting into entertainment used to be distribution. Your ability to find a, a movie studio to distribute your film or a television network to buy and air your show. Now distribution is free. YouTube, Vimeo, you know, you Instagram, you can put up your content anywhere. And in that sense, it has democratized everyone's voice and ability. So now your challenge isn't distribution. Now your challenge for everybody is how to capture audience. So you can put up a video and it's available to the world. If you only got three views, now you see what your challenge is. How do you get millions of people to watch? And that sometimes is about the quality of the content. Other times it's about time. It's about timing and a variety of other things. So for sure, the internet and social platforms have allowed our community to express a variety of different voices. And that's certainly possible. You know, if, if one wants to, to be 
this is as close as I have to be political. If we want to talk about free speech, the more speech, the more better, right? Sure. And so the opportunity for Black folks to create content that can be seen matters because at the moment and in history, there's still not someone Black who runs a studio or runs a network, full stop. Yeah. Now, now we, we could argue about BET, TV1, and some other networks, but one could then argue, but they aren't Black-owned anymore. That's another complicated subject. We don't have to go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. But for yeah. purposes of what you, your question was, on one, so on one hand, it's great. We've seen voices like Ava DuVernay, uh, you know, who, you know, has come out and, you know, yeah. doing great things and, you know, lean away, doing great things. A lot of young filmmakers mm-hmm. and people who are giving, you know, uh, uh, great diversity to the landscape of storytelling. Sure. On the flip side, what YouTube and other social media platforms have done they have eliminated the discipline to become a master craftsman at anything. So you can now make something and, you know, you don't have to be good at it, but you can put it up. And it can gain audience irrespective of whether or not it's positive or negative. And unfortunately, in our community, we made ignorance profitable. There are all kinds of ignorant content out there that, let's just call it ratchet, and there's a market for it. That's what Daryl said it, not me. That's (laughs) that's just a fact. There is a market for ratchet content, and there are those who want to create ratchet content. And all of us have gotten from a friend or somebody, you know, Instagram pops up or you get a text up, look at this, and it's something ratchet that everybody thinks is funny or whatever, and you just go, oh Lord, why, why, why are we doing to ourselves today, right? And and what's, what's so frustrating is in the same time that I say, the great opportunity for free speech matters, and I support that always, it is, it is difficult when you look at a lot of the content that's produced by, and I don't, I'm going to be specific, not to say folks of color, but black folks. Content created by black folks. If a white person had made that, we would be trying to cancel them today. So that's what's disappointing. That, you know, if, if you believe in, in the notion that, you know, we, we have or, you know, an ability as a community to be our own worst enemy. There's, there's an argument to be made there. At the same time, there, there are more than enough examples of extraordinary filmmakers and writers who are doing phenomenal work. And you could argue, well, you know, that's what we need. We need balance. I would argue that I think that the scales are still tipped too heavily toward the pathologies in our community. Sure. I know they're drug dealers. Uh, I know they are, are criminals. I I saw Mandingo. I don't need another slave story. Don't need it. Seriously. I'm just saying. I understand it. I just don't need it. I'm sure. Maybe there's an audience for it. I'm sure there is. There's somebody who hasn't seen the slave movie. That's not me. I've seen it up. Yeah. And I tend to lean more towards. Again, I, I mentioned. Nichelle Nichols, and part of what 
it, it, it's a joke that has been, you know, folks have told for, for decades, but that was the first, um, the first time that anyone had seen black folks in the future. The idea that we would exist in the future. We would still be around, we, right? We need, we need more, more content creators to talk about the aspirations for, of our community and show us what's possible. Show me what our dreams look like, not what our disasters look like. And I talk too long, so I'm be quiet. No, it's great <laughs> because it was an awesome segue into our next question, which I think we're going to have to reserve for on set during Black Diamond Weekend. You know, I, I knew Ron Johnson was brilliant. Now I know that Daryl Bell is brilliant. Watch out now. So excited. Don't, don't, don't say things like that, Blair. Come on, just stop. Well, I mean that. I mean that. Um, Thank you. Black Diamond Weekend's theme, Diamond University, it's a different world. It is obviously a different world. And so we had to bring in Daryl Bell. And we're looking forward to a great time. There are a limited number. At this point, I'm probably looking at a single digit number of in-person tickets available, an infinite number of virtual tickets available. You are more than welcome to join us. We'll continue this conversation, blackdiamondweekend.com. Daryl, thank you. This has been great. This show was brought to you by the consulting services of Positive Vibes Incorporated. We do credit fixes, we do debt restructuring, and we put money in the pockets of real estate investors. So give us a call. We can fix your credit. We can restructure your debt. And if you're a real estate investor, I would love to put thousands of dollars into your pockets. 757-932-0177. That's 757-932-0177. Stay with us online at Black Wall Street Today on Facebook and Black Wall Street Today on Instagram. And then follow us on Twitter as well at BWS Today. We look forward to talking again next week. Have a wonderful week. I have said and I will continue to say that the most important priority for the Black community is the Black community, not a particular political party. Hey, yo, when I say Black